works, the self-righteousness and the Laodicean or lax or half-hearted situation the church has been in all these years, including ourselves, and what we need to do about it, and I don't want to beat that further, you know, we we hear it, we hear it, and uh, perhaps we can be motivated and inspired to do something about it. But I want to move on a little bit today and start in Jeremiah 51. Now, understand that Jeremiah 50 and 51, which we've been through several times, really, and then referred to in part here and there, is speaking of the time when this country is invaded. It's speaking of a time when people will begin asking their way to Zion uh, toward the beginning of chapter 50. Uh, So, a lot of things come together all at once. The gathering of God's people to do His end-time work uh, will be just about the time that this nation falls. Because it says the army is coming from the north, get out of Babylon, gather yourselves in Zion, and that they will come seeking the way to Zion. So there's a lot going on, and I probably will address some of this tomorrow when starting a series for the Days of Unleavened Bread, because there are some very, very interesting parallels between what is going on in this country and the world and what has happened in ancient history to the people of Israel. I won't give you more than that, but uh, there are some things that are transpiring that could turn uh, very violent very quickly. In fact, it's even mentioned here in Jeremiah 51, and I won't go there today. But this standoff down in Bunkerville has uh, caught the attention of a lot of people, and it's less than 100 miles by far as the crow flies from here. Uh, interesting, ironic, I guess. It's called Bunkerville. And uh, is this when you hunker in your bunker? <laughs> People are beginning to think that. So uh, I did see, I checked just before coming over, and the, the BLM has called off the roundup of the cattle for fear of the safety of public officials, they said. That was the, the head of the BLM in uh, Washington. So they're going to pursue getting that land uh, in other ways uh, rather than just coming in and rounding the cattle up. But there are some things here in Jeremiah that are very interesting in the light of things that are going on because Bunkerville is not an isolated incident. There are a lot of this, there's a lot of this kind of thing going on. So we'll address that. But I want to address really one verse here in Jeremiah 51 today. Because as we see the storm clouds gather around the world and in this nation, uh, there is some instruction here. Chapter 51, verse 16. The Eternal has brought forth our righteousness. Now that reminds me of the, I think it's the last verse in Isaiah 54, which says, Their righteousness will be of me. It isn't the righteousness of self. It isn't how I look upon myself and consider myself righteous, maybe. But the righteousness righteousness we need is the righteousness of God that comes from Him and can only be obtained of, by, and through Him. And that's why I talked a little bit about that in Lamentations 5 there at the end where he says that we are to ask Him to draw us, as he says in Hosea and other places. And I may 
go back to that thought because no matter how much willpower we might try to generate, no much how, how much we might try to be good or to not walk in the flesh or be carnal, uh, we are limited as human beings. And any righteousness that we can obtain has to be God's righteousness that comes from Him. So he makes that statement here in verse 16 uh, that God will bring forth our righteousness. Uh, and he says then, Come and let us declare in Zion the work of the Eternal, our God. So we are on the verge of God bringing forth His righteousness, hopefully in us and in others, that He will gather to do His final work before Christ returns. And he says to declare that work in Zion. So it fits very well with where we have been going the last several weeks. What is the work that God wants done here at the end? This is very, very important for us to grasp, to understand, and I know we've been over it from many different scriptures and many different angles and directions. But at the same time, we need not lose our focus and begin to wander here, wander there with our thoughts and our bodies for that matter, but be focused on what God wants done and how we might become a part of that if His righteousness can be worked in us. So we are today sitting right here. There are those on the phone line who are not here, but from our perspective sitting here today, Zion is just over the hill. There's just one ridge between us and it. You go up Cottonwood Canyon here, and you can see Zion. So we are in the environs of it. We're not in the national park per se, but where does God draw the line for Zion? That I do not know, but it is certainly this area, and we're very, very near it. And I believe it to be the true and original Zion where Christ will set forth his rule. So if we're going to declare in Zion the work of God, it needs to be done here. And as we see the storm clouds gather, as they said, around the world and in the nation, uh, that is when he says to declare the work of God from Zion or in Zion. I might tie in Jeremiah 31 that just comes to mind a little bit. Uh, that is quite a parallel to that. <clears throat> Chapter 31, verse 6, For there shall be a day that the watchmen upon the Mount Ephraim shall cry, Arise you, and let us go up to Zion, to the Eternal, our God. Then he talks about the remnant of Israel at the end of verse 7. <coughs> so what we are seeing around us declares that the time for that is now, and that it needs to be done. Now we've been doing it in many respects for quite some years now. But so much the more as the time draws near, and it is drawing very near. So I want to go back to a scripture that I've covered before, actually probably two or three or four times, but I think is very timely for us to consider in the light of verse 16 of, of Jeremiah 51, and that is Ezekiel 17. You remember in chapter 16, God declares that Israel looks to him like any other Gentile nation and is the great whore of the Bible and of Revelation 18 for that matter 
Israel is worse than the other nations and should know better because of the background of the Bible, God's Word, and so on. <clears throat> but we're the worst of the heathen, and he compares us to Sodom and Gomorrah. Something caught my eye here in verse 56 of chapter 16. In fact, this morning as I was kind of glancing through this, Thy sister Sodom was not mentioned by thy mouth in the day of thy pride. Interesting. Sodom is compared to Israel here and the pride of Sodom. Now, what do we call the movement in this nation today, or in the world for that matter, gay pride, or Sodom and Gomorrah pride? <laughs> it's like you're taking it right from the words of the Bible. Right here it is. Anyway, he declares Israel's sin in chapter 16, and how it has become like Sodom and Gomorrah. And of course we know what God did with Sodom and Gomorrah. And he threatens the same thing here. Now let's go to chapter 17 in that context. Understanding where we are today in the moral slide and uh, ungodly practice in our nation and the world today. The word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Son of man, put forth a riddle, and speak a parable unto the house of Israel. So in the light of our national sins, as Israel before God, God tells Ezekiel to put forth a parable and a riddle. In other words, this is something that is doubly hard to understand. Christ spoke in parables that they might be taken and snared and deceived. So they wouldn't understand what he was really saying. And here, it's put forth both as a riddle and a parable. Both hard to decipher to figure out what this is talking about. Now, religionists and historians have read this and declared that it was only talking about ancient Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar and that kind of thing uh, and they haven't applied it to the end time. And yet Ezekiel 16 in this whole context is talking about the end time. So, this is something to be understood in the light of today. And say, thus says the eternal God, a great eagle with great wings, long-winged, full of feathers, which had different colors, came to Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. Now, remember what we have been through so many, many times, how Zion and Jerusalem and Israel are code words from Hebrews 12 of the church, or spiritual Israel first, and secondarily of physical Israel, uh, which its destruction is almost upon us, even as the church has already been pretty much destroyed. So, let's understand this in the light of, first, the church. Secondly, a physical Israel. But first, the church. Because that is spiritual Israel that we are aware of today. So, looking within the church, what have we seen in this past century, from 1926 and 7 until today? A great eagle with great wings... I'm going to apply this to Herbert Armstrong. He was 
a great leader uh, to, that God raised up to call many into his truth, into the church. Long-winged, in other words, spreading over a great area. Full of feathers, lots of people. Many were called, few are now being chosen. Full of feathers which had different colors. And that church did spread around the earth to all colors of people. All nations, all continents uh, had access to the message that was given by Herbert Armstrong in the Worldwide Church of God. At different colors came to Lebanon and took the highest branch of the cedar. He first began, after he left Chicago as a, a failed businessman, to Portland, or the Portland area in Oregon, where there are giant cedars. So there is an analogy there, and I've even mentioned how they had cedars of Lebanon in Pasadena on the campus. And it was always remarkable to me that he would, as he walked about the campus or talked about it, he would often mention the cedars of Lebanon. Uh, it was very common for him. Now, there were other trees there, all kinds of trees and all kinds of plants, but to him, those cedars of Lebanon, which were there when he bought the place, were there. Uh, he didn't ever refer, as far as I know, to Ezekiel 17, but certainly those cedars of Lebanon were there on the campus in Pasadena. Now, there's other things we might think of here. We know this is the original promised land, this continent, and more specifically the southwest where he was raised up, really, or the work with itself was raised up from Pasadena. And the original Lebanon was here somewhere. So, he took the highest branch of the cedar, he cropped off the top of his young twigs and carried it into a land of traffic, he set it in a city of merchants. So it was young, it was small, and it was set up in Pasadena, having been moved from Oregon while it was still quite small. And L.A. is one of the biggest cities of merchants in our land. He took also of the seed of the land, the people of this country, planted it in a fruitful field. Lebanon is reckoned as a fruitful field in Isaiah 29, I think it is, as well. So... He placed it by great waters and set it as a willow tree. Waters in the Bible are spoken of as true doctrine, good waters. And he gave it great waters, good doctrine, great important doctrines, and planted them in a fruitful field where they could grow and be nourished. And set it as a willow tree. A willow tree grows down in the stream bottoms for the most part where there is an amount of water that can sustain their life because they like a lot of water. So God gave us good doctrine, and he planted it in a fruitful field. Uh, Ephraim, which this country is, is the most fruitful, according to Genesis 49 and other scriptures, and has even been elevated to the uh, slot of firstborn in Jeremiah 31, and would have more blessings than any other area. So it was set in this country which is a fruitful field, Ephraim. And it grew and became a spreading vine of low stature. Now, interestingly, he took a cedar, which is a tall tree, and yet what came from this was 
a vine, a spreading vine of low stature, didn't grow tall, didn't grow mighty, whose branches turned toward him. Those of you who are old enough and have been around long enough to understand Worldwide Church of God, understand that everybody's attention turned to Herbert Armstrong and more and more that way and he got all the applause and this kind of thing and there were many pictures of him waving as he came off the airplane and he became almost the central figure almost ahead of God in some respects so here you have it the branches turned toward him and the roots thereof were under him so he became the big name of course God was still in the picture and God was still worshipped and God was still talked about. Uh, but it became much about him. So it became a vine and brought forth branches and shot forth sprigs. So it began to move and become bigger. There was also another great eagle with great wings and many feathers. And behold, this vine did bend her roots toward him. After Herbert Armstrong died, Joseph Dukach, the Ashkenazi Jew uh, Ukrainian, took over. Is that the Assyrian <laughs> on a church level, spiritual level? Very interesting. And shot forth her branches toward him, that he might water it by the furrows of her plant, planting or plantation. So... After Herbert Armstrong died or was killed, Joseph Tkach took over. It was planted in a good soil by great waters, had the same doctrines, had the same people, that it might bring forth branches and that it might bear fruit, that it might be a goodly vine. So it had every opportunity, let's say, even as this country has had every opportunity on a physical level. Did we not start out with the possibility of being a God-fearing nation, Sabbath keepers, uh, feast keepers in Rhode Island and a couple of the other colonies when they first started here? But what happened? On a spiritual level, this country didn't grow either above vinehood by any means. So every opportunity was given it, just as it was this country at its founding. Verse 9, Say you, thus says the eternal God, shall it prosper? It's been, it was given every opportunity, but what happened? Shall he not pull up the roots thereof and cut off the fruit thereof, that it wither? Now didn't Jodakach uproot the church? Didn't it wither and quit producing fruit? People quit coming? People quit... I mean, new people and so on. He says, It shall wither in all the leaves of her spring early after this takes place, in other words. It wouldn't last long, but springtime is the beginning of the year, the whole year ahead of you, so this would be short-lived. Even without great power or many people to pluck it up by the roots thereof. It just happened with a few men who dismantled it, and it began to fall apart. It withered right in its own place. Yea, behold, being planted, shall it prosper? Shall it not utterly wither? When the east wind touches it, it shall wither in the furrows where it grew. East wind. The Ukrainian 
who took over was from the east, Ukraine, and from Chicago, which is north and east of where this happened. Uh, verse 11, Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, Say now to the rebellious house, began to rebel against God's ways, His truths, uh, went back to Sunday keeping, got rid of the feast, went to Easter and Christmas and all that stuff, right back into Protestantism. Know you not what those things mean, or these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon is come to Jerusalem and has taken the king thereof and the princes thereof and led them with him to Babylon. So God had established something, and this pagan Babylonian from America, which is the modern-day representative or leader of the whole world of Babylon, and is taken of the king's seed, those people who were called under Herbert Armstrong, the seed of his planting, and made a covenant with him, and has taken an oath of him. He says, I'll follow in your footsteps, is exactly what Joe Dukat said. And then he immediately did an about-face and made his own footprints. He has also taken the mighty of the land. Evangelists, leading ministers, chose to go with him for the most part, at least initially. And some stayed. That the kingdom might be base, that it might not lift up itself up, but that by keeping of his covenant it might stand. But he rebelled against him, <clears throat> and sending his ambassadors into Egypt, that they might give him horses and much people. Shall he prosper? He even said, uh, we'll grow. We go back into evangelistic type work and Protestantism, then we'll really grow and we'll really produce and everything will be wonderful and hunky-dory and you don't even need to tithe because I know out of the goodness of your heart you'll give even more. And that didn't happen. That was the only thing he reinstituted. Sabbath, holy days, all that stuff went out the window but he reinstituted tithing because the income immediately dropped when he said you don't need to tithe. Things didn't happen the way he thought they would. So he rebelled against God and sent his ambassadors, or the men, they sent the ministry back to Fuller Seminary and other Protestant places to learn. That didn't work out. They tried to get me to go there. And I said, no, I'm not going. And then they shipped me to Idaho. Uh, so he rebelled and thought he would do well. Or shall he break the covenant and be delivered? No, that's not what happens. He break the covenant made with God and that he made with Herbert Armstrong, and he wouldn't be delivered from that. As I live, says the eternal God, verse 16, surely in the place where the king dwells that made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant he broke, even with him in the midst of Babylon, he shall die. Pas or Pasadena, Los Angeles, or in the midst of Babylon, and where Herbert Armstrong died, so did Joe Tkach, shortly after bragging about some things that he would do. Neither shall Pharaoh, with his mighty army and great company, make for him in the war <clears throat> by casting up mountains and building forts to cut off many pers persons. Seeing he despised the oath by breaking the covenant... When, lo, he had given his hand and had done all those things, he shall not escape. So all the sinful world around him could not save him, and he withered and died. 
because he despised the oath, the covenant, the handshake he made with Herbert Armstrong that he would follow in his footsteps and do as he was supposed to do. I know some of you might have trouble relating to this because you're young enough that you didn't see it all, but those of you who, whose heads I can see, uh, that is, without the hair, uh, and so on, uh, saw a lot of this. <clears throat> so what does God say? Verse 19, Therefore, thus says the eternal God, As I live, surely my oath that he has despised, and my covenant that he has broken, even it will I recompense upon his own head. And I will spread my net upon him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon, and will plead with him there for his trespass, that he has trespassed against me. If you go to Zechariah 5, and I don't know that I'll take time to do that, we've been there before, but it talks about how uh, lead would be cast into the mouth of the church and would be silenced, and two unclean birds would take it and set it upon its base in Babylon. And that's exactly what the Tkachas did. They took the church, it was shut up, the broadcasting stopped, the literature quit going out, and it was set upon its base in Babylon. Zechariah 5 ties in perfectly with this. Verse 21, And all his fugitives with all his bands shall fall by the sword, and they that remain shall be scattered toward all winds, and you shall know that I, the Eternal, have spoken it. So the treason against God, against Herbert Armstrong, and against the truth led to the destruction of the church and the scattering to the winds, just as Christ had told us uh, what happened to Laodicea there in Revelation 3. Scattered, splintered, whatever word you want to use, shattered, uh, destroyed, all apply. And can we look back now and say, God spoke this. The parallel here is perfect. That isn't what I wanted to get to. I wanted to get to what God said would happen, yes, but what he is to do next. Because here we stand on the threshold of prophecy and history. Things are going to change very rapidly now in this country and in the world. And we need to know what God wants done and prepare ourselves that we might be a part of what he has in mind. So let's see what he says. After all this has occurred now that we've just been talking about, Let's pick up what God is going to do in verse 32, or 22. Thus says the eternal God, I will also take of the highest branch of the high cedar and will set it. Does that refer obliquely at least to Christ? Who is the highest branch of the highest cedar? The tallest tree. Uh, he will take of Christ. He will take of those whom Christ is working with. And will set it, or plant it, prepare it. I will crop off from the top of his young twigs a tender one, and will plant it upon a high mountain and imminent. So God is going to take a twig from Christ, from that which has gone before, and plant it on a high mountain and a prominent or imminent one. 
we have those here. And the Zion spoken of in the Psalms and various places throughout the Bible talks about the towers thereof and mountain, the mountain of Zion and so on. It's not that little curb-high place they think could be Zion over in the Middle East, but it's right here almost within our sight today. It's a high mountain. It is very imminent, and it has been the most visited national park in the nation, uh, I think two years ago, I don't know about last year, but certainly among the very leaders with Yosemite and uh, Grand Canyon and uh, Yellowstone, I'm trying to say. In the mountain of the height of Israel is where it will be planted. And it shall bring forth boughs and bear fruit and be a goodly cedar. So it isn't going to be a vine anymore spreading with its roots under physical leaders, but it's going to look to God, and it will be bare fruit and be a goodly cedar. And under it shall dwell all fowl of every wing, and the shadow of the branches thereof shall they dwell. So here again, God is going to bring people from around the world, he says in Isaiah and other places, north, south, east, and west, will be brought together to do his work in the end. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Eternal, have brought down the high tree, have exalted the low tree, have dried up the green tree, and have made the dry tree to flourish. So that which appeared to be big and important, God has destroyed. And he's taken, is going to take something that looks dead, doesn't look important. Uh, you know, what, what good's a dead tree? What good is a dead branch? It's dead. It appears not to have life or to be worth much. But God says he will do that. I've dried up the green tree, that which was living, it's destroyed now, and have made the dry tree to flourish. So he's going to take something that doesn't amount to much, that looks virtually dead, and cause it to flourish, to grow, to turn into a mighty and a tall cedar. So that's what he is going to do next, after the destruction we read about in the first part of this chapter. And it solves both the riddle and the parable in the end time of what God is going to do. Now there is a glimpse of the work of the eternal here at the end time, just before this nation is destroyed. He's going to start... Another work to finish his work. And remember we read in 51.16 of Jeremiah that we are to, from Zion, tell the work of the Eternal, our God. Now let's go from there to Haggai. I know we are very familiar. My Bible's about worn out in this area. But in Zephaniah it talks about a great crash, financial crash, and tells God's people to begin to gather before that happens, lest they come under uh, the destruction themselves. It's the same message we see in Jeremiah 50 and 51. Uh, Revelation 18 talks about mystery Babylon the Great and how it will be destroyed, the merchant of the nations, and how all the nations will cry because they're, uh, where they became wealthy is destroyed. It can only be speaking of this country. Uh, and it talks there about how the financial and military destruction of this country will happen in short order. 
very, very quickly it will happen. And right now we are looking at the imminent destruction of the world financial system, which is centered uh, in this country and in London particularly, but New York and so on is where the most of it is now, and that's where the United Nations uh, headquarters is as well. So this thing is coming down very, very soon, and along with it will come the military destruction that Revelation 18 talks about. So, so Zephaniah gives us the time setting just before the financial crash, and it also talks about the military destruction of Israel. And we are, as Ephraim, the leader of Israel. He talks about that in verse 12 of chapter 2 in Zephaniah. And how because the Assyrian destroyed us, he will then destroy the Assyrian. And then he says, down toward the end of chapter 3 in verse uh, 12, I will also leave in the midst of you a poor or meek and humble, afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Eternal. Remember what we read in Matthew 5? Blessed are the poor in spirit are those who recognize their spiritual poverty and are humbled by it, because compared to God, we are nothing and can do nothing, even as Christ himself said, as a human being, he could do nothing. He had to have the strength and the help from his Father in heaven to live his Father's way. Because he was a human being who had human nature, and he had every temptation that you and I have ever suffered. And as a result, he had to look to his Father in heaven, who had that kind of spiritual power that even he as a human being did not have. And he meant it when he said, I can do nothing. Without help and the Spirit of God, he would have been utterly powerless on this earth. So he went to his father daily and beseeched his father to give him the power and the strength to lead a perfect life in a very imperfect world with a nature that wanted to do that which was wrong. God gave him that human nature and said he was tempted in all points like as we are. That had to have been. We will gather tonight to observe and memorialize the life that he lived in perfection without ever giving in to the human nature that he had. Lived it perfectly and then was willing to die for you and me. What an incredible thing that is. And it is work as the resurrected Christ that we are called upon to finish and to do here at the... So he says he would leave in the midst of all this destruction some people poor in spirit who would be meek and humble and not self-righteous who would be willing to do his work. And with that, he tells us in verse 14 of chapter 3, Seeing, O daughter of Zion, shout, O Israel... Be glad and rejoice with all the heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Eternal has taken away your judgments. It is in the midst of you. You shall not see evil any more. In that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear you not, and to Zion let not your hands be slack. So God is going to raise up a remnant people. He is going to forgive them. Isaiah 44 talks about how he will remove our sins 
like a vaporized cloud just before he shows the temple treasures and all those things showing up there in chapter 45. So all these things are coming together very soon now. It won't be long. So, he's going to take a dry twig and make a tree of it. Plant it and it will grow and it will become a good tree. And we have opportunity to be part of that. We're not to fear, we're to work, and we're to produce the work of God here in the end, or to work with Him. And he says, Christ will come and be with us to help us do it. Emmanuel, Christ with us. God with us to bring salvation. Now, that is echoed in chapter 2 of Zechariah, that He will come and dwell in the midst of us. And that's before Christ returns. That's in the time of the two witnesses in the end-time work, as we shall see very quickly here. So that sets the stage for the book of Haggai and what God expects that tree to produce that he talks of in Ezekiel 17 and in Zephaniah. Here he gets down to the work that needs to be done. He came to... uh, Haggai came to Zerubbabel and to Joshua... You'll find those names also in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, where they did what? They went back to Jerusalem to build the temple. And he uses those same names here through Haggai. (coughs) And we will see very clearly, and I think we already understand this, from Zechariah 4 and uh, Revelation 11, that this is speaking of the two witnesses at the end, who will ultimately go to the world, but there is a work that has to be done first. And what is that work? Now, God addresses it here, and it is to those two and the people who understand, the converted of God, the faithful remnant. Thus speaks the Eternal of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now, I believe wholeheartedly that the spiritual temple has to be built. And I think everybody that knows anything about the truth of God here at the end would say that the temple of our body, where the Holy Spirit dwells, has to be built. We need God's Spirit in our minds and hearts to be a part of the temple of God. He says that clearly in Ephesians and other places where Christ is the chief cornerstone, but we are the building blocks as well. So that has to be built individually in us, the temple of God, where he dwells. On another level, uh, he speaks of the temple as the church, or the organism, or the body of Christ. He uses body of Christ, he uses temple, called out ones, various analogies, to get across his point. But... Virtually everyone in the church today who is left would say the Spirit of God needs to be built in the temple of our body. They would also say that the temple needs to be built in terms of a spiritual organism or the church. What nearly all would also say is that we don't need to build a physical temple. So is that more... What Haggai is discussing here and what Christ inspired him to write. 
you will find if you bring up building a physical temple throughout the church, almost in unanimity, they will say, we don't need to build a physical temple. They'll say the Jews may do that if they remove the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim temple that's there in the Middle East, but that the church doesn't need to do it. Now, who's going to build God's temple? Can it be the Jews? The Jews aren't building the spiritual temple of God, are they? No. Christ told them there in Matthew very clearly, you're out the door. I fired you, forget you, until you accept those whom I have sent, which was his apostles who are sent ones. So they're not going to build his church. What did he tell them they were? Snakes, sons of serpents, that they worshipped their father, the devil. That's what he thought of the leadership of the Jews. Have they gotten better since then? No. They're worse, if anything. Now that ties in with this whole subject of how would God build a temple. Is he going to snake vipe, take vipers and sons of snakes and followers of Satan, the devil, to build a spiritual temple? How about even a physical temple? We're going to see, as we explore this subject some more, how God builds a temple and what type of materials he uses and what kind of leadership he requires. He tells us in Isaiah 52, "...to be you clean who bear the vessels of the eternal." And the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Jews were not clean, and they were cast out. <clears throat> so he has nothing to do with them right now. And even the Messianics do not follow God. They follow Protestant Satanism. That's what they follow. So he's not using them. I do believe that not only do we have to build a proper spiritual temple, but we also probably, most likely have to build a physical temple as well. That's the one people say you don't need to build. But consider some scriptures. Daniel 9 talks about how a, an order will be given to build Jerusalem. It talks about uh, the sanctuary before that of the temple. And then says Jerusalem will be built. Well, what order was it done in ancient times? Ezra came back and they rebuilt the temple. Then Nehemiah came and built the wall of Jerusalem and began to build the city itself. The same will be true here. The temple must be built, and then it will be defiled. But not before Jerusalem is also built, because Daniel 9 tells us that there will be an order given to build Jerusalem. And that 70 weeks prophecy is talking about it. There will be roughly, nearly a year and a half given to build Jerusalem itself. And then it says the sanctuary, that would be of the temple, would be defiled. The temple and Jerusalem are together. Now, is that defiling the spiritual temple? No. Matthew 24 tells us, when you see the armies gathered about Jerusalem to flee to the mountains of Judea, let him who reads understand. Something that does not meet the eye normally. 
So they're not going to defile the physical temple or the spiritual temple, the people. They're going to flee to Zion. That's what all the scriptures say. Go to Zion in the mountains of Judea, which are these mountains right up here north of Zion. So what will they defile? The physical sanctuary. They'll take it over. They'll be there for 42 months, the times of the Gentiles. So they won't defile the spiritual temple, they'll defile the physical temple. So both a physical temple and Jerusalem itself appear to need to be built in a land that has been desolate all these years, as we've seen in Jeremiah 9 and Isaiah 55, 6, 7, somewhere right in there, 64 and 65. It has to be done. So it can be defiled. So when he speaks here, and say, The people say, the time has not come that the eternal's house should be built, it must be referring to the physical, because everyone agrees the spiritual has to be. Then came the word of the eternal by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O you, to dwell in your McMansions, and this house lie waste? Now therefore, thus says the Eternal of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. That would be true of us in this inflationary, deflationary cycle we're in right now. We can barely make a living even if there's two people in the family working. And it would be true, spiritually speaking, of the church today. They put forth a lot of effort, these different groups. They've sown much. They've put out booklets. They've gotten on TV and radio, but nothing has happened. Sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but you are not filled with drink. You clothe you, but there is none warm. He that earns wages earns wages to put it into a bag with holes. I bring my check home. I look around, and it's gone. There's nothing there. It's, it disappears. Could that be more depicted in our nation than it is? Thus says the Eternal of hosts, consider your ways. Think about how you live, what you think, what you were doing. Why do we have this spiritual and quickly becoming physical drought? The Consider your ways. Go to the mountain. Bring wood. Build a house. In Ezra, they laid three rows of new timbers, it says. They used some wood in building the temple back then. And I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, says the Eternal. So he is going to, or has, destroyed the former temple under Herbert Armstrong, and now the latter temple must be built, as we'll see here in a moment. You look for much and became to little. All these groups think, boy, we're going to do the work of God, and we're going to preach the gospel around the world, and then the end will come. And it didn't happen. Ain't going to happen. When you brought it home, I blew upon it. Says Why, says the Eternal? Because of my house, that is waste. Spiritually and physically. All of the physical plant that we had, Ambassador College in Pasadena, Big Sandy and Brickett Wood, basically is gone. It's in the hands of the world now. And I even witnessed the destruction of the Loma Armstrong Academic Center 
recently when I was in Pasadena. I drove by and thought, well, I'll pop off the freeway and have a look at the campus. There was the wrecking ball destroying that, even as I watched. Verse 10, Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the corn, the wine, the oil, and that which the ground brings forth, and upon men, and upon cattle, and upon all the labor of the hands. Are we in drought now? Are we headed for famine? Are we going to have higher and higher food prices because of all that's going on right now in this country and around the world for that matter? <coughs> so that describes the physical and the spiritual circumstances of physical Israel and spiritual Israel, the church, around us today. That's the context here. Verse 12, Then, when these conditions are there, in other words... As this nation is about to go down financially and militarily, then, when everything is pointing toward famine, pestilence, and disease, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Eternal their God and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Eternal their God had sent him, and the people did fear before the Eternal. So God is going to raise up two leaders, and the remnant of the people will fear God and hear the message that is given. Then spoke Haggai, the Eternal's messenger, and the Eternal's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Eternal. And he stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel and Joshua and, the, and, uh, and of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of the Eternal of hosts, their God. So God's work here in the end is going to be to rebuild, just as we saw there in Ezekiel 17, the last part of the chapter. He's going to rebuild. And then a little bit later in chapter 2, he says uh, to Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the residue of the people, in verse 3, Who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? How many people right here today saw Worldwide Church of God when it was at its spiritual best? Not too many. Not too many. When would you say it was at its spiritual best? Give me a number. A year. A time. What's that? 66, 67? I would say that's about right. There were still a lot of healings going on. There were still miracles being performed. There were still a lot of people coming. I know when you said 66, 67, that area, that's when I first went to Florida uh, in the ministry. And I had three and four letters a day coming in. There was hardly any church there. When I left four years later, it had grown from about 100 to over 400 or closer to 500. I mean, it was a time of rapid growth. And that continued on for some years. But the spiritual began to fade first, it seemed. So, late 60s maybe, is when it's talking about. I think that is probably about right. Who is left that saw this house in her first glory? How do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison of it as nothing? Not much left, is there? What you saw in the 60s, early 70s maybe, is gone. Nothing there. 
yet now be strong. So he says, when you see it destroyed and nothing basically left of what you experienced, saw, and knew, that's the time to be strong, not weak. O Zerubbabel says the eternal, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, all you people of the land, says the eternal, and work, for I am with you, says the eternal of hosts. So he says, when you see the destruction of the temple, the church, now I want you to be strong and get to work. Isn't that what we saw at the end of Zephaniah? Fear not and work. Let not your hands be slack, he said. Verse 5, According to the word that I covenanted with you when you came out of Mitzrayim, so my spirit remains among you. Fear you not. So he immediately refers us back to the destruction of Mitzrayim and that whole empire. Total annihilation, basically, of its empire and power. And how he delivered Israel with a mighty hand. So he says, don't fear, get to work. Remember Egypt, and we may get to that during these days. So just as God was with them when they came out of there, he says, I will be with you here at the end as well. Now let's get the timing again of what he's talking about. Somebody might still say, well, this is just all in the past. Okay? Next verse. For thus says the eternal of hosts. Powerful title, the eternal of all the hosts. Yet once it is a little while... And I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. That has not yet happened. Okay? But it is imminent. It isn't long now. So this prophecy is talking about just before God shakes the heavens and the earth. It's imminent. Now, flip on over to verse 21 of chapter 2, the same book. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake the heavens and the earth and overthrow the throne of kingdoms, and I will destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the heathen, overthrow the chariots and those that ride then in them, and the horses and their riders shall come down, every one by the sword of his brother. In that day, God says he will make Zerubbabel a signet before the nations. So this is an end-time prophecy here by Haggai about today. It even says, in I think it's Ezra, that there will be a few old men left who will remember the former temple and then see the glory of the latter temple and be able to compare. And he's talking about that in chapter 2, verse 3. Who's left that saw it when it was its best then it was destroyed, and now they will live long enough to see the latter temple built and be able to make that comparison. So some of you who raised your hands a little earlier are still going to be around to see this latter one. It will come within the lifetime of people who saw both, who witnessed it. At the end... Let's see that. 
Uh, verse 8, the silver is mine and the gold is mine, says the eternal of hosts. There's a big battle going on in the world today to capture all the silver and gold. Most of it is being sold to China, to India, to nations of the East. The Israelite countries now are almost without gold and silver. But God has reserved to himself, and this is kind of strange how it's right here in the middle of this context, especially reading Isaiah 44 and 45, how all the treasures for the temple and the riches that God has hidden, secluded, kept away, will be brought out right at the end, at the time when God is going to show the whole world that he is God, and that the gold and the silver is his indeed both spiritual gold and silver and physical gold and silver. Who dares drink from the temple vessels? Go read about Belshazzar and Daniel, who had a party and had all his lords and ladies. They drank wine out of the vessels of the temple that had been taken to Babylon. And then's when the finger wrote on the wall and he died that night. It's going to happen again. That's in Daniel. That's an end-time prophecy if there is one. Sealed until the end, in fact. So, silver and gold is going to be part of this. The glory of this latter house shall be greater than of the former, says the Eternal of hosts. And in this place will I give peace, says the Eternal of hosts. So we have seen the destruction of the former, and we are going to see the building of the latter right here in the end times. Pasadena had its physical plant, and it had its spiritual. We're going to see both, I do believe. And we can get into Ezekiel and the, uh, the temple that Ezekiel describes, which has never been built. And even the scholars in the world recognize that no one is attempted to build that temple, as described by Ezekiel, in the history of man. And we know the temple of God at the beginning of the millennium from Revelation 21 is the temple of God comes down and the Father and the Son are the light of it, that we have that temple in the millennium. So the only time left for Ezekiel's temple is right here at the end of this age. It's the only spot or slot that I can see that it could be. Anyway, <clears throat> let's go on down here a little bit. We have a question we need to answer. Verse 11, Ask now the priest concerning the law. Then he talks about clean and unclean here, and how we need to make a difference between that which is clean and unclean. In other words, <coughs> the temple of God must be built by clean people and in a clean way. What was built before had its flaws, it had its problems, it had its uncleanness. And it was destroyed. Now it has to be built better. Has to be holy. That's why, as I quoted from Isaiah 52, be you clean that bear the vessels of the eternal. He is only going to use people who are willing to cleanse themselves to do that. Now tonight represents Christ's sacrifice being applied for us to cleanse us so that we might have his righteousness. This is a very, very important night tonight. I think we all recognize that, but let's focus. 
and understand that of ourselves, we are unholy, we are unclean, we have faults, we have problems, we have attitudes, we have all kinds of things. And it is only His righteousness that can help us be what we need to be if we're to be proper vessels and clay in the potter's hands so that He can use us to build what He wants built. You know, He could do it Himself, of and by Himself. He made the universe. He made this earth. He put everything on it that is. Could He make a temple? Yes, He could. Could He build Jerusalem Himself and cause walls and buildings to come up? Yes, He could. It's certainly within His power and capacity. (coughs) Will He? No. He has always worked through human beings. Poor guy. (laughs) You know? And I don't say that disrespectfully. He started with Adam and Eve, and it went downhill fast, and boy, it's been a bumpy road ever since, hasn't it? So he tells us to separate the clean from the unclean and the holy from the unholy, and to be clean and bear his vessels that way and do his work. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people and so is this nation before me, says the Eternal, and so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. You know, I'm going to come to Passover tonight feeling unclean. Aren't you? I have attitudes, I have thoughts, I have things wrong with me every day of my life. I fight my human nature every day that I go through. Don't you? Isn't it hard? Isn't it tough? We are human. And by nature, the works of the flesh are our works. So we have to come to be cleansed and purified by the washing of the Word of God, by Christ Himself. That's what we need. Because of ourselves, we could never become what we need to be to do God's work. But he is going to work through people. He says that very clearly. Don't be afraid. Trust me and work. Then he talks about this time of spiritual and physical famine, pestilence that is coming on the world, and how he smote us with Bildu and so on, that he is going to begin to bless. And I won't go through all of that. We've already seen uh, that he's going to call Zerubbabel a signet at the end. Now let's get, oh my... Quickly into Zechariah a little bit, (coughs) and maybe I'll have time to summarize this. We've been here before, so we already know basically the story, but I wanted to help us focus and understand what has to be done next. Now, Zechariah began to write during the middle of the time that Haggai was writing. Those prophecies came through Haggai at different dates as given. And the one in Zechariah happened about the time, the middle of Haggai. And he tells us not to be like our fathers, like the past. He tells us not to rebel, but to listen. And not to despise this message that is about to be given in the book of Zechariah, that Haggai was already in the midst of delivering, and Zechariah then was inspired in the middle of that to give us the next chapter about how this is going to come to pass. 
He says in verse 12 uh, of Zechariah 1, Then the angel of the eternal answered and said, O eternal of hosts, how long will you not have mercy on Jerusalem or on the cities of Judah against which you have had that indignation <coughs> these threescore <coughs> and ten years? And the eternal answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. A uh, worldwide church of God lasted close to 70 years until it was basically destroyed, just like the early New Testament church did. So the time frame here is pretty close to what it originally was with the original captivity in Babylon that Jeremiah experienced and that Daniel and them went through. So he said, this place that we have been, this Babylon that the church was raised up in, has to be destroyed. And he spoke to the church with good and comfortable words about delivery. So the angel who communed with me said to me, Cry you, saying, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy, and I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease, for I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. He was somewhat displeased with Herbert Armstrong and our work then. And then he became sorely displeased with the Tkachas and the evangelical movement. And that brought forth the affliction and the scattering. <clears throat> Therefore, thus says the Eternal, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, says the Eternal of hosts, and a line shall be stretched upon Jerusalem. So both the church, the spiritual organism, and the physical as well. Then he talked, he says in verse 17, end of it, Yet comfort Zion, and I shall yet choose Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been destroyed and desolate now for many generations, and only foxes and lizards live there, as we find in Jeremiah and other places. <clears throat> Why would he say Jerusalem has to be built in the end time to have the heathen come in and defile it if it's already there? That Jerusalem in the Middle East is there. I've walked the streets of the old city. I know it's there. Why do you have to build what already is? He's talking about a place that is desolate, and it will yet be chosen. And it's north of Zion, says the psalm. Then lifted I up my eyes and saw four horns, and it says, These scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. I'll not try to name them by name necessarily, though I have a few names in mind who were with the Tkachas. And then he says, There's four carpenters which will come and rebuild. Chapter 2, I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, a man with a measuring line in his hand. And then said I, Where do you go? And he said to measure Jerusalem to see what is the breadth and the length thereof. And behold, the angel talked with me, uh, that talked with me went forth, and another angel went out to meet him. And he said to him, Run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle therein. We began to understand this about... 18 years ago. I was a lot younger then. So were you. For I, I, says the Eternal, will be under her wall of fire round about, and will be in the glory in the midst of her. Flee from the land of the north, says the Eternal. 
So we have to get out of Babylon. We saw that in Micah 4 and other scriptures. Zephaniah 2 is one reason we came out here near Zion to do what God says to do. So you're already in it. You're already part of it. Stay. Don't lose your focus. Be here. Finish what God has called us to do. He says, I spread you abroad as the four winds of the heaven, in verse 6. Verse 7, Deliver yourself, Zion, that dwells with the daughter of Babylon. There's, there's Jeremiah fifty fifty one. Flee from Babylon. Get away from this destruction that's coming from the north. <clears throat> now, Babylon represented a northern power, but so did the Assyrian, and we'll get into all of that more later. But Jeremiah also says that the Babylon that we are a part of will give, its leaders will give their hand in the destruction of this country of Israel. So we have a Babylonian-type government over us today who will sell us out to the Assyrian and the northern army, them being a part of it. For thus says the Eternal of hosts, verse 8, After the glory has he sent me to the nations which spoiled you, for he that touches you touches the apple of his eye. The apple of God's eye is his end-time church, who will be part of the 144,000 as they qualify, and will be the bride of Christ, or a part of it, a major part of it. So, those whom he's called out to be a part of the church are very important to God. Uh, verse 9, For behold, I will shake my hand upon them, and they shall be a spoil to their servants, and you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me. Sing and rejoice, daughter of Zion, for lo, I will come, and I will dwell in the midst of you, says the Eternal. That's when Emmanuel will be fulfilled. The Word, Christ with us, the hope of glory. Verse 12, And the Eternal shall inherit Judah his portion in the Holy Land, and shall choose Jerusalem again. He's going to choose the church again, and he's going to choose the original Jerusalem again. Be silent, O all flesh, before the Eternal, for he is raised up out of his holy habitation. So here again is a reference to the end time when he rises up and goes to work. <clears throat> and then chapter 3 talks about Joshua, the one pulled out of the fire, who would be given uh, clean garments and uh, given certain promises and told that the seven eyes of the church would be on what goes on and how every man would have his own vine and fig tree and there would be signs and wonders. Those things are yet ahead of us. Then in chapter 4, he talks about the two witnesses, uh, the one comes before, and then together they are in chapter 4. Uh, verse 14 of chapter 4 talks about how these are the two anointed ones that stand before the Lord of the whole earth. Uh, Revelation 11 confirms that they are the anointed ones, the two witnesses of Revelation 11. And here it shows them feeding the church, the spiritual organism or the spiritual temple. And it tells us, as we've seen in Revelation 11, to leave out the court of the Gentiles, but measure the altar and them that worship there, the ministry and the people that God has called out. And that residue of faithful ones will come to work, as Haggai says. 
But they feed the church, the seven lamps on the stands, the two olive trees by it, or the two witnesses. And then he says in verse 6, he, he spoke to me saying, This is the word of the eternal Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the eternal of hosts. None of what is about to happen in the church could happen without God, his power, and his spirit. It couldn't happen. Without him being a wall of fire around and a covert from the heat and the protection that he promises in Isaiah 4 and in Zechariah 2, we could not do what he has ordained that we should do if we're part of the end-time remnant. Who are you, O great mountain? The governments of this world. Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain. He shall bring forth the headstone with shoutings, crying, Grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Eternal came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house. His hands also shall finish it. And you shall know that the Eternal of hosts has sent me to you. Ezekiel talks over and over again about how in the end time people would know who God is. That the events that are about to occur are going to show very clearly who God is. And some people who are even involved, as Isaiah 45 says, don't know God. Even the one that the temple treasures and the treasures and the gold and silver of God are revealed through does not know God. Doesn't know who He is, what He's about, where He's from, or anything about it. And I think I've worked with the individual spoken of there, and I will guarantee you he does not know God. I have no doubt in my mind of that. Okay? And it says it here. Well, it says it in Isaiah 45. <clears throat> Verse 10. For who has despised the day of small things? For they shall rejoice and shall see the plummet in the hand of Zerubbabel. The plummet measures uprightness. It measures uh, cleanness. It measures holiness. In the hand of Zerubbabel, with those seven, they are the eyes of the eternal, which run to and fro through the whole earth. The two the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. And then he said, Who are these two olive trees on the right and the left side of the candlestick who empty out the oil, the truth of God, to the seven churches? And he said, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the eternal of the whole earth. <coughs> and the only other place that is mentioned is Revelation 11, speaking of the end time two witnesses. So, Quickly in summary then, God is going to do a great work here at the end. He is going to call together the faithful remnant, wherever they may be, scattered throughout the world, and whatever group or organization they might be in, and some not in an organization at all, who are sitting at home on their living room today on this Sabbath, who don't know what to do, and are confused and frustrated by the confusion we see about us within the spiritual organism of the church. God is going to bring it together and plant it, and a cedar will grow from what is left from many being called. A few are going to be chosen. God says He will stir them to come and build a temple. 
No man can bring them. No man can know who they are. God, in His vast wisdom and able ability to read the heart, will bring those whom He wants to build His temple, both spiritually and, I believe, physically, that will then be defiled by the beast power while the spiritual temple flees to Zion to safety for 42 months before Christ returns. And only then will the two witnesses begin on the day that the flight occurs, the three and a half years, the 1260 days, or 42 months start. They will then preach for three and a half years, be killed, and three and a half days later Christ is going to return. So the temple has to be built, Jerusalem has to be built, they have to be defiled by the beast, and the church is nourished in Zion for three and a half years while that goes on, and the gospel is preached to the world by the two, and then the end will come. So there's a brief thumbnail sketch of what God is going to do. And I wanted to review that before we get into a more specific I'm not trying to say it, specificity, or more specifically then, okay, of what God is going to do here in the end time, and how he will do it, and what kind of materials he will use. We need to specify that. We need to understand that, and how God builds a temple. So today we have reviewed the fact that he is going to do it, and what it will look like when it is done, it in part. So from there we can go <clears throat> into more detail about how God builds. But I will probably set that aside uh, until after the Holy Days because there is some information that I think is very important for us to review during these times with meat in due season. So we'll see you tonight probably just a little before 8.